so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech Newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. As we continue our mini-series here on the podcast on the recently released volume, The Digital Public Square from b Academic, I'm joined by Brooke Medina today to talk about her contribution entailed defining the limits of hate speech and violence, dignity, truth, and speech in the digital public square. Brooke and I talk about the widespread debate over hate speech, as well as how Christians can both speak truth and grace in the public square. Brooke serves as the Vice President of Communications at the John Locke Foundation in North Carolina. She's completed numerous programs from the Charles Koch Institute, including the Koch Leaders Program, as well as the Koch Communications Fellowship, focusing on the philosophical underpinnings of market-based management, as well as classical liberalism. She also sits on the board of directors for ReCity Network. Her writing has appeared in numerous outlets, such as The Hill, The Washington Examiner, Daily Signal, and FEE. She's also a graduate of Regent University. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Brooke, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. Before we dive into the conversation, obviously we have kind of a weighty and big, complex conversation that we're going to have today about hate speech. I want to know a little bit about you. Tell me a little bit about your story and what kind of intrigued you about these type of questions and why you wanted to spend a lot of your time kind of diving into these type of issues in the public square. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Jason. One of the things that really propelled me into just thinking through and then wanting to articulate in some coherent way issues surrounding tech policy, which do include content moderation and how it pertains to hate speech, is because in my vocation, I'm a communications uh, director. And so doing a lot of interaction with the media, with the public, especially in the digital world and on those uh, digital platforms, it just became increasingly clear to me when you're in the political space like I am that there are just so many words and accusations and labels volleyed arbitrarily behind keyboards. It's what we call keyboard courage. It it foments this distrust uh, in addition to some of the other topics that are covered in the digital public square, such as misinformation. It's just this one huge ecosystem of complex issues that really 
either highlight in a negative way or a positive way our humanity in the digital space that happens regularly, but just personally as someone who's dealing with this on the work front and having to sort of moderate our digital platforms at the John Locke Foundation, I've had to think through, you know, what does content moderation look like even in our blogs when we allow for comments and does everybody deserve the same sort of access to say whatever they want to say, even if maybe what they're saying is is hateful or derisive to another person? So again, like just I've had to deal with it on the work front, but even as a parent, you think about this with your kids growing up as digital natives, and uh, they are part of this iPhone generation, and they have to navigate these things for themselves. Their peers are navigating it. It's just in our interest and my interest in, as a mother to help my children even think through uh, what the implications are of what they say online or what is said to them and helping make sure they don't bifurcate between their real world life and their digital life. Because I would argue that in many ways they're one and the same. The digital world is just an extension of who we are in the real world. Yeah, and that's what I really appreciate about the way you approach these issues in this chapter, but kind of your overall work is you take a more holistic picture. I mean, you're obviously talking about tech policy. That's a space that you live in and work in. But you're also talking about being a mother and being a parent and navigating these questions with the next generation. And one of the ways that you open up your chapter is talking about kind of that proliferation of information, that overwhelming amount of information that we all process today, as well as just, as you said, that kind of bifurcation or temptation to bifurcate our lives between like the real life, my real self, and that online self. I always joke that uh, when we engage with some folks, they'll say, he's a lot nicer in real life. And I think that that should be kind of the last thing ever said about a Christian, uh, that he's different or she is different online than she is in real life. Uh, because as you said, we shouldn't be, it's, it's one in the same. It's the Christian life lived out in two different mediums in some sense. But given the overwhelming amount of information and that temptation to kind of bifurcate our life, while many of the challenges that we're facing today aren't new per se, and that's something I love about your chapter, as you point out some of the historical precedent going on here, what is unique about kind of the ways, some of the challenges, I guess, that we're facing today in the public square kind of writ large, but even specifically in a lot of the content moderation, what is unique about our time, even if the overriding kind of principles aren't? Yeah, I would say what is especially unique, of course, is, like you said, the proliferation of information, misinformation, depending on how someone wants to define that, the accessibility of it in real time. So that information overload is brand new, and our minds struggle to grapple with that, like that constant stimulation. Another part that I would say does not get talked about as much, uh, at least yet, is our digital body language. So that's something... We have learned over our lives, starting in childhood, how to intuit someone else's body language. We call it our emotional intelligence. We're able to sort of read between the lines and figure out what is not being said just through a face-to-face -face interaction with someone. And we have not necessarily, as a society, especially because we're still split between digital migrants and digital natives, so those who grew up understanding uh, the internet because they were born after the iPhone versus those who migrated over and they were the era of MySpace and Friendster. And so we're speaking two different languages in a lot of ways, and that's vastly different than um, in previous, the, the pre-internet era. 
And it creates a lot of room for misunderstanding. There's a lot of opportunity on that front of learning someone else's digital body language. But until we figure out how we're communicating online and how someone else is trying to talk to us, that creates these opportunities for mistrust and misunderstanding. And I'll just give one quick example of this. It's You know, for example, you might be working with someone at the office and you guys are both remote and they are your boss and they just send a, they maybe are 20, 30 years older and they send you a quick text message response that's okay, period. And a younger employee often will misunderstand that and they will think that comes across as passive aggressive. Um, It's so final. It's just very curt and short. And the older employer might perceive it as just being a way in which they're saying, I've acknowledged your message, I've received it. And so even just tiny things like this, I know we're going to be discussing hate speech, but I think that's a component of the digital age that outside of principles, it's just we have an opportunity to learn one another's digital body language, um, but it's going to take a lot more effort for us because it's new to us. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful point because the interesting thing, at least in the hate speech debate, kind of as I see it and have written about as well, is that a lot of times what's happening online, people won't actually say to someone face-to-face. There's this old kind of meme, or maybe it's not a meme, it was like this story and it was like this young kind of gangly guy kind of, and he was speaking to one of these kind of big MMA fighters or something like that. And the guy, he was like really getting on this guy, like just making fun of him and pointing out all this stuff. He said, why don't you come and say that to my face? And he goes, oh, I can't do that. Um, you know, I wouldn't do that. You'd beat me up. Like, there's no way I'd say this to you in real life. Um, And that's one of the interesting things about the way that these mediums are shaping our messaging and shaping our interaction with one another. And I think that has a lot to do even with the hate speech debate. But early on in your chapter, you also draw a connection between some of the psychological effects of living life online, some of that misunderstood language, some of those kind of passive aggressiveness, and some of that kind of often even aggressive nature of online speech. And you connect that to a lot of the rise of what's called safe spaces. And I put that in quotes. Obviously, we're not on video, so I have to say that. But like the idea of a safe space and especially being prevalent in a lot of higher education today. I wanted to see if you could unpack that a little bit for us. Obviously, you referenced a few different works throughout that section. But can you describe some of the real issues that we're facing in terms of online bullying or harassment before we get into some of the kind of fluctuating definitions of hate speech? Yeah, I know there's been an increase in the medicalization of inconvenient or unpleasant experiences, and that has propelled the university approach to safe spaces, um, both online and in person, because any conversation you have nowadays surrounding hate speech it's so much more broadly construed, the concept of hate speech, than what it was even a couple of decades ago. And so what I mean by that is there is someone may tell another person on a college campus, for example, I am pro-capitalism. I believe that that lifts people out of poverty. And the other student may hear, even though that those weren't the words that came out of that conversationalist's mouth, they might hear, I'm pro-colonialism. They hear, you know, one person, I'm pro-capitalism, the other, I'm pro-colonialism. And so there's this already sort of aggression in between these people. And college campuses have sought to mitigate that by creating these safe spaces, these places that 
there can be no unpleasant thoughts and uh, sort of challenging ideas presented, which A, is just the antithesis of a university, but also it infantilizes these students um, because it approaches unpleasant speech or difficult concepts as an issue that's tied to medical problems, whether it's like it, whether it's a mental health issue or causes anxiety or stress, which can obviously present themselves in physical issues as well. And so that's what we've seen on the college campuses. I would argue there are probably a number of people that have promoted safe spaces that may be meant well at the beginning, but I mean, good intentions without actually understanding the consequences that result from them really just needs to just stay in the good intention realm and never be actually acted on. And I would argue safe spaces are one of those. And that's different, though, than I would say the online bullying that we see, because safe spaces precludes any even opportunity for difficult conversations. Online bullying, it's pretty clear oftentimes when someone's being bullied, if you spend any amount of time on Twitter, uh, you see it happening regularly. I was just actually on Twitter earlier this morning and was uh, watching this back and forth go down about just this this woman and her appearance as she was starting to age and get a little bit older. Mind you, she's only 36 years old, but in like, you know, in our youth obsessed culture, she was getting older and just the level of bullying and mocking that were leveled at her for daring to post a photo that was unfiltered. And so I think that, you know, the conversation around safe spaces is meant to mitigate that sort of painful bullying, but I think it's wrongheaded and has obviously taken us down paths where political dissent is punished. People aren't allowed to show or read or discuss ideas and books that are controversial, and that's certainly not the purpose of a university. And on the bright side, though, you're seeing a pushback against that. Here in North Carolina, where I live, the University of North Carolina school system, we have a great public university system, but we've been sort of ground zero for going back and forth over free expression and what that looks like on college campuses. And I've seen a movement of professors and other school administration actually take a stand for free expression on these campuses and say, we're not going to infantilize these students they're here to learn and they're here to encounter uncomfortable ideas. We need to bridge this gap between the progressive students and the conservative students and get them talking to one another or with one another rather than past one another. So I'm hopeful that there is some movement on that front, but it certainly is a very real problem and a concern that many students and academics alike have. Yeah, one of the things that you do in your chapter is kind of help us navigate some of the complexities of defining hate speech, uh, which is notoriously difficult, not only in U.S. law, um, but especially even in international law, um, as we start to get into kind of transnational type of interactions and entities and things as well. But before diving into that specifically, I do want to kind of highlight that point that you talked about, kind of the difference between you know, hate speech or speech that induces violence, because that's something that it, there actually is some good precedent, especially in case law. The Supreme Court has taken this up numerous times, because one of the things I'm convinced about in this technology kind of policy debate is that many of these technology companies at times seem to feel like they're kind of riding blind, like this is the first time we've ever had to navigate some of these questions and failing to take into account 
the 200 plus years of case law that we've actually had on some of these very issues that we've had to work out in the public square in terms of our relationship with the government or other kind of uh, institutions. But somehow these technology issues are brand new and these companies have to kind of figure it all out and start from ground zero, which I think is a, a really wrongheaded approach. And we advocate multiple contributors on the volume, even though we didn't correspond on this, would say, while you're not bound by First Amendment principles, this is a really good place to start. Um, it gives you some of the kind of guardrails. So I wanted to see if you could help us to unpack a little bit of the difference then between, quote, hate speech that we're going to unpack later and the idea of speech that incites violence or even hate crimes, uh, which is kind of that additional level and kind of additional threat. What is the difference there legally, but even ethically as well? Yeah, I think that's a really important area to create some distinctions um, because online, oftentimes they will, especially like these social media companies and their moder content moderation policies, will conflate both of them as hate speech. It falls under this bigger, broader umbrella. And that's part of the problem is there is so much ambiguity in what qualifies as hate speech. And so, I, again, this is to your point that you just made as you were kind of framing this up, is there is all of this case law and all of these principles that we've adhered to in the physical world. And yet, for some reason, both uh, private policymakers like on the, at the social media companies and public policymakers really struggle with crossing the digital divide and making that connection in the digital space, which is funny because I feel like it's rather simple in many cases. I mean, the tools you use to moderate it will be different, but the principles will remain. And as it pertains to hate speech versus that inciting violence, there's a, an imminent lawless action test uh, that the government has set up that I think is really, really good. And this helps discern the difference between someone saying something that is maybe immensely offensive and very unpleasant or mortifying, deeply hurtful. So that I would say could qualify as being a hateful, you know, set of statements, but that should have a very different distinction than this inciting violence. And so this imminent lawless action test says, first, is it directed at inciting imminent lawless action? And second, is it likely to incite or produce such action? If this level of scrutiny cannot be met, the speech is permitted. And so it's very, very simple. It is asking the question, is someone saying online, for example, my address and then calling for immediate action against me or my family that is a threat to us? If that's the case, that is actionable even in the court of law here in the United States. But if someone is saying they really don't like my hair and they think that, you know, my teeth are funny, that is maybe unpleasant to me that day. I don't want to hear that, but it is not something that uh, would warrant any sort of legal action, let alone do I think it warrants necessarily them being deplatformed. I mean, people are going to be keyboard warriors sometimes, and an unhappy, miserable person who does not have charity toward others will behave like an unhappy, miserable person who does not have charity toward others online. And so that's no surprise. I can use that block button judiciously on my social media accounts. I can report them. And I have, even in just my line of work, had to report certain accounts who have made just libelous, slanderous accusations against the organization I work for or some of my colleagues. And I think that's just fine. But we also need to be discerning and careful that we are not equating that sort of speech with 
the same type that warrants government intervention, which would be that violence, citing of violence. And one note on that, just with violent speech, I think this is especially true in this online, well, no, it's true in the physical world as well, but it is interesting to note as a woman, I say this, and as a mother of daughters, just concerned about how oftentimes females are largely the target of these, does not mean that men don't also have these difficult interactions, but for some reason, it seems like it is magnetizing for people to level hate speech and just like really mean, cruel things toward women. I'm not entirely sure why that is. I'm sure there's some psychology behind that. But under those circumstances, I do think women should be especially careful what sort of information they divulge and make accessible online as a result of that reality, whether it's fair or not. But that's just like, as an aside, a word of caution for listeners. Just if you have teenage daughters in particular, we know the studies have shown that girls especially are more vulnerable to mental health challenges uh, that are usually the backdrop is the digital world and what they're seeing online. Um, And so just to be a discerning parent on that front as well. Yeah, I know one of the areas that this kind of has become ground zero in the hate speech debate is especially over LGBTQ plus rights and kind of interaction online, Um, especially in terms of preferred pronouns and what's a concept called dead naming. Um, For those who may not uh, be familiar with some of that, there's an article that I wrote for ERLC. We'll make sure to put it in the show notes about defining the limits of hate speech as well. And that's where we started to see, at least in my kind of area, some of the ground zero work around hate speech. Um, Because in many ways, you look at these technology companies that are policies as often they have differing levels of hate speech. And I'm glad to see that, that there's some complexity and nuance to the debate. But one of the interesting things is, is while I think most people, especially Christians, may agree with kind of the highest level in terms of violence or dehumanizing speech and things like that, it's interesting by the time you get to kind of that third kind of tertiary level, much of anything that makes me feel uncomfortable or I don't like can be considered hate speech today, which is a very, we'll kind of unpack this in a minute, but that kind of social norm or kind of court of public opinion is a really unreliable guide to navigating some of these complexities that you rightfully point out. But you write in the chapter, you say, defining the limits of online hate speech and violence is a titan-sized task, especially in light of the nebulous and often extremely kind of subjective nature of hate speech. So, I know we've kind of hinted at this, you've kind of already said it, but I want to be very, very clear for listeners. Is there a legal definition of hate speech in the United States or even in international law? In the United States, no, there's not. And that is to our benefit because the societal norms and mores change so regularly and so rapidly, especially in this information age, that what someone would have thought was absolutely just like it wouldn't have been on their radar, such as what you referred to as dead naming just a few years ago is now considered an act of violence against a person who identifies as a different gender. But that's only for the U.S. And that to me is why we should be even more grateful for the First Amendment and so many of the protections that we have as a result of that, both on the religious liberty front, but also the free speech front It is just absolutely critical to our ability to engage with difficult and uh, sometimes unpopular ideas. But that is definitely not the case throughout the world, Um, whether it's Canada, just up to our north, or in the United Kingdom. uh, Increasingly, there is just a lack of 
willingness to even allow someone to espouse any sort of opinion that is contrary to the prevailing mode of thought, which is, I mean, we saw it especially, we saw it rise during like the COVID era and there was battles over, you know, this information source and that one and this theory and that one. And um, to me, those are opportunities for us to display some discernment and to do a lot of digging, but there is no overarching government law that requires social media companies to not allow certain speech on its airwaves or on its digital waves. Uh, However, again, like I said, in countries uh, both in Europe and just to our north, this is not the case. And we've heard stories of people being arrested for dead naming someone, using the wrong pronoun, saying they disagree with, you know, that particular lifestyle or this one. And so just, again, it should make us very grateful for the First Amendment, but also advocate for really good freedoms for social media companies so they don't feel like they have to be beholden to different government's laws. Because right now that's part of this whole complexity is that Facebook or Meta could adhere to one law in the U.S., but then they have to kind of kowtow to Canadian precedent and Canadian jurisprudence in another arena, even though obviously the digital the digital square knows no nes- no real like uh, national boundaries. So that's one thing that we point out kind of early on in my the first chapter of the book that I wrote, kind of this idea of defining and kind of toward building toward a public theology for a digital age is I highlight an essay by a friend, uh, Clon Kitchen, who wrote it um, uh, National Affairs. And one of the things he rightfully points out is he says that we we now operate in a time where we have transnational entities. No longer are they bound by kind of uh, boundaries or borders. Is that they're operating in, across the world. And so while many of the companies are based here in the United States, they're operating around the world and having to adhere to local law and jurisdiction as well as social norms and these changing kinds. And it's interesting is uh, things are not as ubiquitous as we often think. We often think that like our little corner of the world is basically how most people think. Maybe there's a little dissonance here and there, but there are actually some wide ranging differences, um, even that we're seeing in churches today over and over LGBTQ plus issues and same-sex marriage and others, where many churches in Africa, especially in the Methodist tradition, interestingly enough, are holding to the orthodox historic understanding of sexuality to the disdain of many of their churches here in the United States uh, who may not be in that particular denomination. And so you're already starting to see a split even within some of these denominations, much less when you expand that out to uh, governments and organizations and other social institutions. One of the things that you've mentioned multiple times, though, throughout this conversation is the words of wisdom and discernment. And I think that is something that was really important to me about when we were selecting the contributors for this volume, we were looking through the the essays themselves and editing and things and making sure that we're kind of harping on that. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of complexity. There aren't just simple yes and no answers per se. Part of that pursuing wisdom and discernment, though, is kind of what you point out is that there's a history here. Now, granted, this history is being compressed in many ways, and what may have taken decades to change years ago is actually happening in days and months and weeks now. But you, uh, you highlight a piece from Kim Holmes 
uh, who was the former executive vice president at the Heritage Foundation on the origins of hate speech. I wanted to see if you could speak to kind of the ways we define hate speech as actually weakened free speech protections, as well as some of the actual remedies for navigating uh, speech that induces violence. What is it about this shifting definition of hate speech and kind of ever expanding definition of hate speech that makes it difficult to kind of navigate some of these challenges today? Well, I would, um, to your point that you were saying earlier about wisdom is there's this Bible verse that says wisdom is known by what results from it. And I think that to answer your question on this front, we can look at some other historic examples of how words began to slowly become more elastic and lose their original meaning. And it caused harm to those who um, who that word was originally intended to describe or or assist. Um, I think just even with the Me Too movement and um, what qualified as sexual assault and how that um, became exceedingly elastic to the point where, again, if someone said something untowards another person, it got lumped in with the same category as violent sexual assault, and it was all part of this Me Too tsunami or the same with accusations of racism. And so someone maybe, you know, misspoke, but was kind of talking with, uh, you know, dancing with their two left feet and didn't mean something in a way that, but but it just was probably just ill-spoken versus someone actually discriminating another person based on their race. So I think when words become more elastic, including the term hate speech, it becomes more of a difficult thing to pin down and actually deliver justice for those who were actually egregiously wronged. Um, When you think about people who have been harassed online, and um, some of the books that I was using for background as I was writing this chapter really were sobering as I read stories of people, men and women, who just experienced such deep and vitriolic harassment both in the digital world and then it resulted in like physical harassment in their real world experiences. That's sort of where I think hate speech and understanding what hate speech actually means, that's the direction we should be going. But this overly broad definition of it and this embrace of, you know, just accidentally misspeaking or maybe speaking um, about a biological reality that other people currently don't think is in fashion, that it actually causes real damage Uh, because it drowns out the real calls for justice for people who are actually suffering right now. And so that's an exceedingly problematic turn of events that we've experienced lately as people have sought to grapple with what hate speech actually means. Yeah, one of the things that I love about your chapter is that you kind of help us to keep these two things in balance of speaking truth unapologetically and uncompromised truth, but the same way doing so full of grace. And we see this modeled in Jesus himself as he spoke really tough truths, but he did so in a very gracious and kind manner. And not in this idea, a lot of times in these conversations, we get into the winsome debate. Um, I don't love the word winsome. It's not something that I think is incredibly helpful here. But I also like the kind of the idea of speaking truth, but also in a grace manner. And I think that's actually not so much winsome speeches, it's just Christ-like speech. It's what we're called to as Christians to navigate some of these things. So what are some of the ways that Christians can go about speaking truths, uncomfortable truths, especially as you mentioned some of the biological realities of being created male and female uh, by God and the unique things that flow from that, but doing so in a redemptive way? 
that honors the dignity of all people, regardless of kind of their orienting doctrines and beliefs. Yeah, I think it first begins just with our own hearts. And we have to be honest about the motivation that we have in our hearts about our desire to engage with people in the digital square about really difficult issues. And we know they're difficult. I mean, we at least have enough awareness to know as we're typing that Facebook post or that tweet or that Instagram post, like this is possibly said, I'm stepping onto a landmine here. And so understanding that our digital body language is going to communicate something to a watching world, including people who we might just like, just have one person in mind. It might be that one person who is really struggling right now, maybe having a severe mental health battle and having that person in mind as I construct that tweet and thinking through, okay, what is my motivation in speaking this truth? And as I ask myself that, oftentimes it helps infuse that engagement with grace because I, when you ask what your motivation is, it it's a question that actually already assumes that you are capable of having some bad motivations from time to time. So I think one part of this is asking what our motivation is, but another one is not operating from a place of fear. And I just remember uh, personally, I was a little culture warrior when I was younger. I had became a Christian around 16 years old and I came to Christ at a, a pro-life event and I just became very, very passionate about um, about making sure that babies were protected and women were, you know, were, were honored and kept safe and provided hopeful options. But I just remember as I was growing up in that sort of culture warring environment, looking back, I think a lot of the decisions that were made in haste were done so out of a spirit of fear. I'm not speaking for anyone else. I'm speaking for myself here. And just fear that, you know, the society was falling apart and that, you know, all of these people were going to suffer irredeemably if I didn't do something. And thinking a lot of stuff actually rested on me rather than the Holy Spirit doing his job. And so I think that's another way that we can ensure that the truth we speak is infused with grace is looking at what we're doing and asking ourselves, am I doing this from my heart of fear and then I'm afraid afraid of losing this battle? Or am I doing this out of a heart of love because I want to see this person live a full and flourishing life? And I think just those pivots to different, to, to making sure our motivations are right and that we're not being fear-led, those alone go a long way, I would say, in making sure that our speech is seasoned with truth and grace. Yeah, I think one of the big important points, and I think I addressed this in my chapter, I'm not positive. I know I addressed it in other works, that one of the things, one of the biggest anecdotes to a lot of the tensions we face today seems really trite, but the idea of slowing down and having a little friction and saying, do you really want to say this? Or kind of questioning your motives or maybe giving it five minutes um, and not responding kind of in the heat of the moment, the the height of emotions uh, can go a really long way. And it's one of the practices that I have with my students uh, teaching their voice I have my students read through the book of Proverbs uh, for one of our classes. It's kind of introductory to philosophy course. We're navigating some of these type of challenges in the public square. And it's funny to me, by the time you get to like Proverbs 12, you're like, I'm pretty sure that Proverbs, I'm pretty sure Solomon is actually talking about social media. 
like the idea of wisdom and nuance and the way of the wise versus the way of the folly and truthfulness and honesty and humility and all of these character traits. And then one of the verses that always comes back up um, is James 1.19. And I feel like that could be kind of a banner kind of wisdom verse for Christians in a digital age and a technological society is to be slow to speak, to be slow to anger, and to be quick to listen. That right there can actually change everything. And that is not compromising truth. A lot of times this idea of not being so quick to the trigger, some will categorize as, oh, you're compromising truth or you're kind of, you're weakening. And that's actually not true at all. It's actually a source of wisdom and power and strength because as you said, it's not in me. It's not in my ability. It's not, it's, it's actually trusting the Lord rather than kind of living in that more fearful manner. Yeah, I would, I would like to say as a follow-up on that, because that's spot on, Jason, is that gentleness is not weakness. And I think in this reactionary environment of the social media world, it is just the desire is so often, even for Christians, just to win this argument and, ju- and just, yeah, like hot take, hot take, hot take all the time, even so much where you you can log in online and you'll just see these such lamentable disagreements between Christian brothers and sisters over things that should not divide relationships. And then when you do take a step back, people think that you suddenly don't have a, an opinion on it. And it's unfortunate because Oftentimes, yeah, the the reactionaries are rewarded with the likes and the engagement, which results in these dopamine hits. But I would say the long term legacy uh, will it will establish clearly that those who were gentle and wise and circumspect in their social media engagement were the real winners all along, regardless of if they only had two likes versus the two thousand from the reactionary. Yeah, uh, one of the contributors to the volume, Josh Wester, who's also one of my really good friends, uh, Josh likes to say the internet does not deserve your opinion on everything. Uh, Sometimes that we just assume that if something happens, that people need to know what I think about this. And reality is, is most often than not, you don't have an expertise in whatever the area is. Maybe you've read a little bit on it. That's great. Maybe you should text a friend. Uh, Maybe you should talk to your spouse. Maybe you should go out to coffee with someone, even someone who you may actually disagree with on that exact point and have an open, honest, face-to-face conversation because it's kind of wrapping up from what we talked about earlier. So much of what is said online wouldn't be said in person uh, rather than fear or even just the recognizing the, the dignity and value and worth of just looking at someone in the eyes and saying, look, you're a person just like I am. Uh, you may have your particular struggles. I have my own particular struggles. None of us are perfect. And so seeing the dignity and value of other people can actually radically alter our conversations. And I think that's something wise to kind of pull out from this conversation. While we're still dealing with some very intense issues surrounding hate speech, the manner in which we carry ourselves, especially as Christians in the public square, matters. And it matters intensely um, in the Christian ethic. Brooke, I really appreciate the way that you navigate a lot of these questions. I appreciate your contribution specifically to this volume. Uh, We'll link to that in the show notes for people if they want to grab a copy of this book as well as kind of follow you online. But I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today here on the Digital Public Square. Thank you. It was a delight to be here. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing, and they also help share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, connect with Brooke and learn more about her contribution to the Digital Public Square project in the show notes. 
Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues in the public square today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonpacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. It's produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.